You're listening to a provocation in the 2013 World's Literature Festival. Writers from across the world gather to discuss the art and craft of writing. This year's salon is on the theme of ways of reading and ways of writing. Good afternoon. <clears throat> Sing me a story, tends me a song. Four notes on the art of catching a shadow by the toe. First, slumber. Our first introduction to the narrative arts, literature, music, theatre, choreography and visual mimicry of all kinds is an experience that most of us do not remember. And still we can all safely assume that we were so deeply enchanted by what we heard and saw and even felt physically that not only did it entertain us like nothing we had encountered before it, but were so moved by it that it brought us onto another plane of consciousness. Yes, when story finds us first, it is in its most powerful and paradoxical state, profoundly melancholic about its merciless message while it cloaks it with art and good intentions. It comes to us as the lullaby. And while we are being entranced by the performance, the voice, the animated face, the arms, and even the beat of a heart, the singer of that tale learns that her tiny audience is an audience of one whose appetite for melody, gesture, and poetry is only rivaled by the milk in her breasts. Bium, bium, bampalo, bampalo, diddly diddly do, sini minum vaka ye ro, and uti bidden antlit of skutka. Bium, bium, bampalo, bampalo, diddly diddly do, sini minum vaka ye ro, and uti bidden antlit of skutka. I rock my little one to sleep, but outside a face looms at the window. Drinking such stuff with our mother's milk, there is no wonder that we become such a demanding audience. Even though after our lullaby face, we try to avoid things that make us fall asleep. And from then on, we keep trying to quench the thirst kindled by that first experience of story of drama. And luckily, the well the lullaby springs from will still be flowing long after our mother's breasts have slipped. <clears throat> memory. Long before the Egyptian god Thoth brought us the alphabet, the ink, a sharpened quill from his own plumes, and the papyrus, there were a man or a woman, an old man and an old woman, a foolish girl, an idiot boy, who had an encounter with a mighty force of nature that had been trapped in a tree, in a bottle, at the bottom of a well, in the body of a tiny animal or some ridiculous and vulgar creature, not befitting its status as a mighty force of nature. As they were released from their traps, the spirit of the forest, the dwarf, the princess of the elves, the djinn, rewarded their benefactors with three beans, three copper coins, three magic spells, three companions, or simply three wishes in one form or another. And the three opportunities 
given to them for the act of kindness or cunning, uh, and the three opportunities given them for the act of kindness or cunning uh, put the nature of the lucky human characters to, to test. Those who are pure of heart are rewarded with kingdoms and treasures. The greedy ones end up with the same empty hands they used to pull the cork from the bottle, the lid of the lamp. Long before the printer Gutenberg thought of placing the letters of the alphabet in a row in a tray, so they formed words and sentences, there was a cheating wife who was having fun in her marital bed with her lover. Well, that is how cheating wives do their cheating. As the lovemaking was reaching its height, the woman heard her husband enter their home, making himself known by a variation on the words, Honey, I'm home. So quickly she threw herself off her lover and ordered him to hide in whatever in the bedroom was big enough to conceal it. What ensues is a comedy that results in the lover having to endure a dessert hardship in the cupboard, under the bed, behind the curtain, in a barrel, in a chest, on, the, on a windowsill, in a latrine. Or the husband discovers the hidden lover as he stumbles or runs out of his hiding place and proves to be the king himself, the idiot stable boy, the priest, the mullah, the rabbi, the milkman, the jinn, again, his best friend, or the new neighbor, that mysterious woman he himself has been lusting for in his dreams. But it can also turn into a tragedy. The, the storyteller lowers his voice. He leans forward to allow the fire to play on his old face. Not a muscle moves under the wrinkled, weathered skin, a sure sign he is fighting the strong emotions evoked by what he alone knows is about to happen in the tale. Yes, the husband spots a foreign footwear that has been hastily thrown under the bed, and seeing a sudden movement through the corner of his eye, he rushes across the room and proceeds to thrust his sword through the curtain, the barrel, the cupboard. But his wife uses all her feminine cunning and talks him into thrusting it through the curtain, barrel, cupboard, beside the one her lover is hiding in instead. But as the husband does so, a sad sigh of pain is heard from within, and their five-year-old child comes stumbling out and towards them, fatally wounded, for it had been hiding in there with the innocent good intentions of, her, of surprising its mother. And here the storyteller's voice falls into a whisper, encased in a string of letters on the page of a paperback novel. Yes, maybe there was no lover, only the child and the single Santa it had brought in from the street, the mother and the violent man she had married. Long before IBM introduced magnetic tape, selected typewriter, the MTST, the, first word, first, the world's first word, word processor, there was a prince who by playing the fool managed to revenge the murder of his father by his mother and her new husband, his uncle. In his 9th century Nordic incarnation, the prince was called Amlodin. In the 16th century England, he became known as Hamlet. And in the 20th century, he was reincarnated as the lion cub Simba. Wakefulness, third. It is due to one of our most fascinating skills that tales, jokes, and nursery rhymes travel so easily with us from one millennia to the other. 
from one culture to the other, across the seas and over the mountains. It is the talent we have for processing the stories we are told, the songs we hear. We take pleasure in being seduced to give into make-believe. Our mind's favorite game seems to be second-guessing what happens next in a story. To compliment a rhyming word, and with a moment thought, we participate in the art of the fable where one thing is, is substituted by another. Again, to make a dark truth bearable, to keep the sting of a satire as sharp as it needs be, to be able to confess to our weaknesses and laugh at our own expense. So we should not blink at a story that might begin along these lines. On the night, when Mr. Spoon had, had his lifelong dream come true, that is, being used by the Prime Minister, he found himself in a situation that deprived him of the reward that should rightfully await all of us who have had an experience worth its telling. The joy of telling a story to an understanding and appreciative audience, which in the case of Mr. Spoon meant boasting about his experience to the other silvery Messrs. Spoons in the cutlery drawer of the restaurant's great couple. And what an experience it had been. As the soup was served, Mr. Spoon's oval, shapely form had repeatedly entered the PM's warm and wet mouth, and he had been thrilled by the silky touch of the slippery tongue, the subtle clanking against the clean and yellowish teeth, and the molar of pure gold on the left side of the lower jaw. The firm brick of the bluish lips that contracted around the spoons round the tip as the statesman made sure he didn't miss a single drop of the creamy white soup they were enjoying. Added to this was the exhilarating pleasure Mr. Spoon got from being held in the national leader's white and hairy hand. The very same hand that had a special relationship to one of the most prestigious instruments in the country, the fountain pen that was used to sign public orders of all kinds, as well as international agreements that had global consequences. The thick fingers had squeezed the spoon's handle gently as it rhythmically dipped him in the soup and slid, slid him back into the warm mouth. Ah, how his colleagues in the silver spoon department would squirm with envy. But to cut the story short, Mr. Spoon's peers never got to hear his boastful tale. A new member of the staff, a dishwasher most likely in a hurry to catch a midnight screening of Reykjavik Way Watching Massacre or other such film, mislaid the piece of silver cutlery in the deep drawer that housed the more worn-out kitchen tools. And down there, Mr. Spoon found no one refined enough to appreciate the story. <laughs> he feared that the riffraff of fish turners, skimmers, ladles, mussers, scrapers, whisks, and meat hammers would only mock him, spoil his tail by rude remarks. And how could they be expected to understand it? The pitiful things had never been inside the mouth of a human being, apart from the ladles who had been licked by the sous chefs more times than they care to remember. So Mr. Spoon kept to himself. If this was his mistake was never discovered, Mr. Spoon soon lost his shine, and because he was never again picked up for use, he sank deeper and deeper in the drawer until he got lost at the bottom with the unsharpened, the rusty, the toothless. 
That is, until I found him uh, at the flea market in Krakow <laughs> and extracted this tape from him. As you can see, he has already been polished and to speed up his recovery, I have tied a brown silk tie around his neck. <laughs> now say hello to the people, Mr. Spoon. Hello. <laughs> Third, death. It seems that for the life of us, we can't stop telling our tales, epic and lyrical, singing of songs full of lament or lust. We keep stating them as dances or plays, filming them for screens big and small, reciting them in schoolyards or acting them out in the media. Yes, they keep insisting on being told by any means necessary. They are restless until they find a sympathetic tongue that can be seduced to bring them to a friendly ear, a curious eyes, or, or a curious eye to pass through. And we give in, we become the channels they need to be kept alive. I am sometimes asked why in my novels I use folk stories, biblical apocrypha, obsolete science theories, uh, myths from north and south, tall tales of human adventures of land and sea. And my answer is that it is not I who am using the stories, but the stories that are using me, like they are using countless others and have been since the night we turned human. So, when a story knocks on the door of my storyteller's hut, situated in the brain, in the grey zone between memory and creativity, I bid it welcome and wait for it to state which form it wants to take, which part of human life it wishes to address this time around. But why? What are they here for? How does this obsessive storytelling serve us as species? One suggestion is that the stories function to keep our aggression in check, that they are exercises in compassion that allow us to reflect on ourselves through a shared experience. And thus, they keep us less likely to kill and eat each other. Another idea, and one that I like very much, proposes that stories are the only remedy against our awareness of death. That by keeping busy with all the things that can take place during a lifetime in the small world of humans, by pretending to be occupied by life in all its variety, we craftily turn the mirror on death and cheat it for a minute. Like Theseus when he tricked the Medusa and cut her head off. No more than the hero could look the monster in the eye without being turned to stone can we face head on the merciless truth of our inevitable death without despair. Perseus was rewarded with winged Pegasus, springing from Medusa's petrified neck, and we keep being rewarded with our own tools for our own earthborn flights of fancy. So let's be thankful for all the stories and songs, and how lucky we are that they are of such an adaptive nature, these amazing shapeshifters and nimble-toed shadows. Our lives depend on hosting them. And rest, and, 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 and be sure that uh, long after our books have disappeared, we, we will still be entering the castle of fear in the company of the youth who went forth to learn what fear was. Thank you.